Okay. John chapter 4. And let me pray. Lord, I thank you that we have a word, a more sure word of prophecy uh, that guides us into the future and gives us a firm foundation upon which to stand. Oh, Lord, help us to take these words to heart, apply them to our lives, and then conform our lives to your will. In Christ's name, amen. So today we come to Jesus' encounter uh, with the woman at the well. <coughs> and uh, last week we were in Nicodemus, the Nicodemus story, and after Jesus uh, ends his meeting with Nicodemus, he immediately heads northward. He gets out of town, and he goes northward. And the scripture says he goes northward to get away from the Pharisees who are hounding him. And so if you look at John chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3, we see this. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, and they were trying to stir up trouble, uh, Jesus himself did not baptize, though, but his disciples did. He left Judea, that's in the south, and he departed again to Galilee to assure that they don't follow him. He leaves Judea and heads for Galilee, but in doing so, he crosses the border into forbidden territory. He goes to Samaria, and the Jews would have nothing to do with the Samaritans. And he knows that if he goes up toward Galilee to Samaria, through Samaria, the Pharisees won't go there. And so he's been able to get them off of his trail. And that's important. Now let me just say this, that if you take Jerusalem <coughs> and then you take Galilee where Jesus is headed, okay, and you know the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. If you go between point A and point B, straight, you go straight through, through Samaria. You look on the maps in your Bible, you go straight through Samaria. Well, the Jews would not go into Samaria. It's forbidden territory. They avoided Samaria like a plague, and there's a reason for it. So what they would do is when they headed north, they would actually cross on the other side of the Jordan River, <laughs> and they would go up the east side, surpassing Samaria, and enter Galilee. It took them about another three, four, five, six, seven, eight extra hours. But that's how much they hated the Samaritans. So Jesus says, if I want to get rid of these Jewish Pharisees, guess where I'm heading? <laughs> I'm going to go into Samaria. Uh, Jews thought if they went into Samaria, they'd be defiled. Well, you know, Jesus doesn't care about defilement, does he? <laughs> he doesn't care about any of those kinds of things. So we're going to cover, and that's why verse 4 says, so he needed <laughs> to go through Samaria. So he had to get rid of these guys. So we're going to cover verses 4 through 26 today. And here's how I'm going to divide it. It falls into two major scenes. Scene number 1, verses 4 through 15, deals with water. Deals with water. And the key verb is the word give. Okay, deals with water, and the key word is the word give. Okay, then verses 16 through 26 deals with worship, and the key word 
is go. The key verb is go. So we have water and give and then worship and go. Okay? That's pretty simple. Within each one of those scenes, there are three discussions that takes place, three exchanges between Jesus and this woman. Okay? Now, let me tell you a little bit about Samaria and why the Jews hated the Samaritans so much. I'll give you some background to the conflict. In 722 B.C., <coughs> the world power at that time was Assyria. And Assyria intended to sweep down. It just took over the entire world. I mean, it was the, num- oh, the most powerful empire in the world. It had decided to sweep down and just take over the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And that's what it does. It sweeps down and it invades the northern kingdom. Before it hits the southern kingdom, it's the troops are pulled away. There's a diversion. So they never go into the southern kingdom called Judah. But they do destroy the northern kingdom, and they capture the population of the northern kingdom. The capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel was called Samaria. Samaria was not always forbidden territory. That was the capital of those ten tribes in the north. The capital was Samaria. The capital of the southern kingdom was what? Jerusalem. Okay, so that you just have to remember that. Just like we have capitals of our states. Okay? So the, uh, the Assyrians invade the northern kingdom, capture the people, scatter the people, and the Jewish people in the northern kingdom begin to intermarry with their captors. They marry Gentiles. They marry Assyrians. That's not a good thing to do uh, because what they end up doing is they end up adopting the idolatry of the the Assyrians. And so they're still worshiping God, but they're also worshiping idols. Does that sound familiar in the Old Testament? Yeah, sure, that's exactly what happened. Now what happens is in time, a new world power comes on the scene. And that's Babylon the Great, if you're familiar with them. Babylon defeats Assyria. And when it does, it sweeps down and actually goes as far as the southern kingdom and captures Jerusalem and the southern kingdom. And the Jews go into what's called Babylonian captivity. You familiar with that? And that lasts for 70 years. A third world power comes on the scene. Persia. Today we call it Iran. It was a world power at one time. They defeated Babylon. And all the Jews of the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, become subjects to Persia. And the Persian king says, you know, if you want to go back to your home county, he was very nice. He said, if you want to go back to your home country, your homeland, I'm going to let you go back. And a large group of Jews traveled and went back to the southern kingdom and Jerusalem. And another group of Jews went back to the northern kingdom where they were from and settled there. Okay? But those in the north are what? Worshiping God and idols. So that's the difference. You still with me? Okay. You know what happens in the southern kingdom? They decide to rebuild the temple. Remember that? How they're going to rebuild the temple? And... The Jewish Samaritans in the north say, hey, we'll help you. We're going to volunteer and help you build your temple. 
And guess what the Jews in the South said? No way, Jose. You're into idolatry. So they spurned the Samaritans, rebuffed the Samaritans, and don't allow them to help in the rebuilding of the temple. So you know what the Samaritans did? They built their own temple on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. And the Jews in the south were so angry with that that in 123 B.C., the Jews from the south went into Samaria and destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. And there has been bad blood ever since between the Jews in the south and the (laughs) half-breeds in the north in Samaria. Does that make sense? And so Jesus, he says, I'm going to go into Samaria. That's going to be a shortcut up north. And the Pharisees wouldn't touch that piece of property. You know, they treated it like a plague, if you will. They would not go there. So that's the situation. So Jesus decides to go into Samaria. Now look, verse 5. And so he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So this area in Samaria is where Jacob settled. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one of the fathers of the Jewish faith. This is where he settled after he escaped from Esau. Okay, So what we have is that Jesus goes into this region, and he stops. Uh, verse 6 says, there were, Jacob's well was there. And being wearied from his journey, he sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. This is the rest area. You go down the U.S. highway, and it says rest area, 47 miles. This is the rest area. If you were a traveler, you would stop by a well. And Jesus, it says in verse 6, uh, sat there. That means he either sat on a stone bench or on the rim of the well, Jacob's well. This was a well that was 105 feet deep, and it's still in existence today. It's fed by an underwater stream, constantly being fed, and it supplied the water for the entire village. It's very important. It says that it is 12 noon. It's the sixth hour, which means 12 o'clock noon. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So this is going to be discussion number one, where Jesus asked for a drink. Remember, there's going to be three discussions or three exchanges take place in each one of these scenes. So what we have is that Here's this woman, and she's at the well all by herself at noon. Now, a lot of commentaries say, well, this woman was a prostitute. There's no indication that the woman was a prostitute. You cannot find it in the text. And so they say, well, why why is she there at noon? Well, and the implication is that uh, she's not with other women. No other women are around her. And we do know this, that women usually went to the well to draw well well water and take it home in the evening when it was cooler, and they would go in groups. So that the fact that this woman goes at high noon and she's by herself means something. 
It means that other women are likely shunning her. Okay. And so the implication, often the conclusion is that she is uh, uh, a prostitute, but there's no indication that she is a prostitute. But we do know that she is being shunned by the other woman, and there's a reason. They consider her immoral, okay? and we'll see why they consider her immoral. <coughs> now, Jesus says, give me a drink. Uh, water is a major theme in the Gospel of John. We saw in chapter 1, John said he baptizes with water. Jesus would baptize with the Spirit. So you have water in chapter 1. Chapter 2, Jesus turns what into wine? Water into wine. In chapter 3, he says to Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit. You see water in chapter 3. Here in chapter 4, you see water. Then in chapter 5, it opens up, and you can look at your book. It's probably right on that same page. It opens up with Jesus healing a person at the pool of Bethesda. There's water there. Okay, so a lot of water. Chapter 6 of John, Jesus walks on water. Now, would you say that water is a major theme? Yeah, and just go through this. You'll just see as you go through this that there's water is just about in every chapter. Okay? Now, so he asked for water. Now, look what it says in verse 8. Look at the word for. Do you see that? He said, give me a drink. Why did he ask her for a drink? Look what it says. For or because his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. Well, what does that have to do with asking for a drink? Most likely, they had the canteen. They had the water bag, which, you know, the, the team drank from. And they went to the city to buy food, and they ended up taking the water with them. Or they had the utensil that you would need to dip water. And Jesus doesn't have either one, and there's no, they're not around, so guess if he wants a drink, he has to ask this woman, this unclean, defiled Samaritan, for a drink. See? Uh, and it's interesting when you start looking at how Jesus has his needs met, and how Jesus meets needs, and how the disciples meet needs. Now, for example, in chapter 2, there's a need for wine. Mother says, hey, we need some wine. They ran out of wine. Well, the normal way of getting wine would be going down to the store, the market, and buying some wine. But what does Jesus? He doesn't operate on that principle. Jesus, by faith, turns water into wine. Okay. Uh, here, Jesus needs something. Notice, by faith, he asks this woman for a drink. Same thing, an unclean woman. Where are his disciples? How are their needs going to be met? Where are they at? They're out buying food. That's how they're going to get their needs met. They're going out to the market. Uh, remember when Jesus speaks to the 5,000 on the hillside? And the disciples say, hey, we better send them away. It's getting late. And uh, they're getting hungry. And uh, there's no market open to get them food. How do they expect people to get Go to the market. He said, don't worry about market, schmarket. What does he tell them to do? Line them up, and what does he do? Multiplies the bread and the fishes. This is how Jesus gets needs met. It's different. It's very interesting when you see this in the Gospel of John. It's just chapter after chapter, and it just jumps out at the page. So he says to this woman, give me a drink, and it catches her off guard. <laughs> and look at verse 9. The woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, <laughs> for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
And that's the bottom line. So that's discussion number one. Now we come to discussion number two. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Again, you notice the giving in there. That's the key verb, right? So uh, first of all, he says, if you knew the gift of God. Now, what's he talking about when he says, if you knew the gift of God? Well, probably he's talking about eternal life, or he's talking about uh, being born again into the kingdom, or salvation, or something along that. If you knew really about salvation, we'll just use that term, because it has to deal with either being born again, or salvation, or being birthed into the kingdom. And number two, you knew who said to you, give me a drink, and she doesn't know who he is. In fact, the only thing she knew was what? You being a what? That's all she knew. Uh, she doesn't know who he is. Now, it's sort of different when you look at her versus Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, good teacher, we know. This woman doesn't know anything. And you're going to see a, a contrast between the woman in chapter 4 and Nicodemus in chapter 3 that is just unbelievable contrast. Okay. He said, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask and he would give you living water. Now, to the woman's mind, living water, for, a, for people living in those days, meant water that wasn't stagnant. It was water that moved. That was called living water, if you take it literally. Jesus isn't speaking literally. <laughs> Jesus is speaking metaphorically, and we will see that, okay, symbolically. We know that. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, if you look at chapter 7 of John, look over there just for a second. <coughs> and when you get to John chapter 7, look down at verse 37. John 7 and verse 37. <clears throat> now, this is another circumstance, but uh, look what he says. On that day, the great day of the feast, uh, Jesus, this is John seven thirty-seven. Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Sounds a lot like what he said to the woman, right? He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow living what? Water. Same word, living water. Watch this. But he spoke concerning what? The Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Spirit was not yet giving, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when Jesus speaks of water, living water, he's talking about the Spirit. See? And by the way, that's chapter 7. That's another chapter with water in it, right? Okay, so go back to chapter 4. So the living water, he's referring to as the Spirit. Remember what he said to Nicodemus? You must be born of the Spirit. Uh, he said water and Spirit, and we translate it water, even the Spirit. Right? So water means Spirit. And uh, in Revelation, you're familiar with that. The, when the same gospel writer writes the book of Revelation, he says, and he showed me a pure river of the water of life. That's living water. Look at this. Clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And then you know this. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who is thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water freely. He's talking about the Holy Spirit that produces eternal life or everlasting life in a person's 
uh, experience. And so that's what he's talking about in John 4. So go back to John chapter 4, and uh, that's what the living water means. He's talking about salvation through the Spirit, being born of the Spirit. Same thing he was saying to Nicodemus, only in different terms. Okay? So look at verse 11. <coughs> the woman said to him, Sir, when she hears living water, she's thinking, like in Jacob's well, you know, that kind of water. It's moving, living. The woman started, said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. See that word draw? You saw that word once before in John chapter 2 when he tells the servants to go out to the six jars and do draw. And what happens when they draw, the water is turned into wine. It's transformed. So here you see how chapters are related to each other through certain words. And she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. You don't have a, a bucket, as Peggy uh, read in her dramatic reading. You don't have a bucket. You don't have a utensil. Uh, you don't want my utensil. You get dirty. So I'm, my, mine's unclean. I'm a Samaritan. You don't have anything to draw with. See? And uh, I think she's sarcastic here. He says, if you'd ask me, I'd give you something to drink. And she says, you don't even have anything to draw with. See? She's being sarcastic. Remember how Nicodemus was sarcastic? What do you want me to do, get back to my mother's womb? That's sarcasm. This is pure sarcasm. And you'll see it as you read through it, that this woman is being sarcastic. She said, you don't have anything to, uh, to draw. And by the way, that well is 105 feet down. <laughs> now you're going to give me a drink. <laughs> see? So it's important that you see that, okay? It's, uh, it's, it's very similar to Nicodemus. Now look at verse 12. She said, by the, by the way, you know, who do you think you are? See, that's how I'm reading it. Now. See, verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? And the answer in her mind is what? No. See. Who gave us the well? You're offering me a drink. He gave us a well. Look. And he drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock. She's saying, you know, even Jacob, the guy who dug this well, had to drink from it, and, but he couldn't drink from the water of this well until he first dug it. You know, are you, are you greater than Jacob? Where are you going to get this water? You're just going to pull it out of thin air and just give me some drink? So she's being sarcastic here, and you need to see that. Are you better than the patriarchs? You're just a Jew. In fact, you're a Jew and you're a thirsty Jew. <laughs> and you're so desperate you're asking a woman who's a Samaritan for a drink. <laughs> and you're saying you're going to give me something? You don't have anything. You don't have a utensil. You don't have water. You don't, can't get down there. You can just pull this thing out of thin air. See, she's, she's just, this is how I would act if somebody came to me and was in that job. I'd make him sweat a little bit. Okay, so now, now we come to discussion number three. Look at verse 13. Discussion number three. Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this well water is going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into what? Everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the water that he's offering, water of the spirit, 
to have everlasting life, a never-ending supply. Uh, that's what he offered to Nicodemus. What did Nicodemus do? Didn't take it, did he? <laughs> now, isn't it interesting in this discussion, in verse 7, Jesus asked her for a drink. In verse 15, look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, what? Give me the water. In verse 7, he asked for a drink. In verse 15, she asked for a drink. But she's still thinking of literal water. She's not thinking in terms of new life in the kingdom. She says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water. Why does she want the water? That I may not thirst nor come here to draw. You know, it's getting tired. I get tired coming here every day at noon, carrying that bucket on my shoulders. She's still thinking of literal water. You think maybe he's a magician. He can give us something that's going to last forever, you know. And uh, But at least, even though she's confused, at least she asked for it. Nicodemus asked for nothing. Okay? So uh, that's scene number one. Now we come to scene number two. Key word is worship. Okay? Scene number one, water. And give, scene number two, worship and go. Okay? So look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come. That's a command. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Go get your husband and come back here to this spot. Okay? And uh, now we have this exchange that goes on. Look at verse 17. The woman said to him, I have no husband. Okay, and Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, because you have had five husbands, and the one you're now, you now have is not your husband, you're just living with him. In that, you spoke a truth. Now, we have uh, to read this passage, and we need to read it on two different levels. First of all, we need to read it at a literal level. All these passages you need to read literally, you need to read symbolically. First of all, this woman is like Elizabeth Taylor was. She had five husbands, and then she finally gave up and just started living with them, okay? So that's number one. But there's a... but when this was being read by John's audience, they weren't just thinking, well, she had five husbands and the guy she, Why would Jesus say, go get your husband? Why would he even ask that question? He said, give me some water, and what does he say? Go get your husband. Why would he say that? He didn't say, my husband wants some water. Why would you make some sort of statement? There's a reason behind it. And when John's audience read this, they realized that the woman had five husbands, just like Jesus said, and that the one she was living with wasn't her husband, but Jesus is using this symbolically. And for, to Jesus, this woman represents more than just a woman. She represents the entire nation of Samaria. And I want to show this to you. I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 17. Now, this is something that's very, very interesting. <coughs> Jesus is using this woman as representing the nation as a whole. Now, remember I told you what happened. Back in 722, Assyria came in. Remember that? Defeated the northern kingdom. And I told you the northern kingdom become unfa- became unfaithful to God, right? 
Jesus said, you've had five husbands. Now watch this. Look at 2 Kings 17 and verse 24. <clears throat> so now they've been invaded by Assyria. 2 Kings 17 and 24. Then the king of Assyria brought people. This is what he does after he def defeats Samaria in the north. He brought people from number one, one nation, Babylon. You see that? Two, Futah. Three, Ava. Fourth nation, Hamath. And a fifth nation, Sefer. Sephar Vaim. That's five nations. So when Samaria was defeated, the king of Assyria brought five different nations into that region and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. So they were replaced. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in the cities. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. That's these five nations, and, and then the Jews up there marry, intermarried with them. And therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. And so they spoke to the king, these five nations, saying, The nations whom you've removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of God and of the land. Hey, we're all foreigners. We don't know what we're supposed to do up there with all these Jews, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You see that? They do not know the rituals of God in the land. And then the king of Assyria commanded to say, well, send one of, their, uh, one of the priests whom you brought here to Assyria, one of their people, one of their priests, and let him go and dwell there and let him teach the rituals of God, of, of the God of that land to the heathen of those five nations. Okay? Then one of the priests whom they'd carried away from Samaria came and he dwelled in Bethel and he taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on high places which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities where they dwelt. So, Samaria, after Assyria defeats them, they start intermarrying with people from five different nations. They have five different husbands. You see that? One, two, three, four, five. And as a result, they hold on to believing in God, but guess what they do? They embrace also the gods of these five nations, and they start practicing idolatry. And thus, Samaria commits adultery with other gods, the gods of other nations, and turns its back on the true and living God as far as pure worship is concerned. And so at the end of that chapter, you see... Uh, like verse 41, you get this final word. It says, so these nations, these five nations, feared the Lord, yet they served the carved images, and their children and their children's children, these half-breeds, have continued doing so as their fathers did, even to this day, when this king's passage is written. So this is what Jesus said. Yes, you literally have five husbands. The guy you're living with not your own. But I'm going to give a little history lesson. I'm speaking now of you as representative of the nation of Samarita, Samaria. When, when the Assyrians defeated you, you became adulterous 
wives to five different husbands, these five different nations, and you embrace their gods. And now guess what? You're under another husband, Rome. Now you haven't embraced their gods, but you're under them, and you're still submitting to the nation of Rome. So there is an example of where a passage needs to be looked at at two different levels. And it doesn't make sense if you don't look at it at the second level. Because why would he say, go bring your husband? Does he just want to show her how smart he was and that he was, you know, a prophet? No, it doesn't make sense. So he uses her circumstances to drive home the point that Samaria, originally the land of Jacob up in the northern kingdom, is outside of God's will. Okay? Still with me? So that's exchange number one. Now she says something. She said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. So, very interesting. She starts off with saying, identifying Jesus as a Jew. So now she moves to the second area. She says, maybe you're a prophet. Okay. So she sees that, God, that Jesus may be representing God and speaks for God. Okay. Now we have exchange number two. So look at verse 20. The woman said, to, uh, uh, she, she said, I perceive you're a prophet in verse 20. And she says this. Our fathers... And that would be the mixed breed, <coughs> you know. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. That's Mount Gerizim. And you Jews say that Jerusalem in the south is where we ought to worship. So this deals with the proper place of worship. You know, which is the proper place? Maybe the prophet can answer this question for her. Should we be worshiping on Mount Gerizim? And by the way, they built that temple on Mount Gerizim, and it was destroyed. At the time Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, the temple which is destroyed on Mount Gerizim is lying in ruins. And on top of it has been built the temple of Zeus. Just like today, the Jewish temple, the temple of Herod which has been destroyed, what's on top of it? The mosque of Omar. Okay, so you need to realize that. She said, should we worship over here? And she points up to Mount Gerizim, but guess what she's really pointing to? The temple of Zeus. <laughs> she said, is that where we should worship? Or should we, you say it's down there in Jerusalem. Where should, where should we worship? You know, What's the proper location? Now look at verse 21. <clears throat> Jesus said, woman, there's the second time he says it. When did he say it before? Woman at the well. Okay, you see how things are repeated over and over again? Now watch this. He said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you, meaning you all, whether Jew or Gentile or Jew or Samaritan, you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Worship the Father. Women, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Worship the Father. So he's saying that there's coming a day when location will mean nothing. Even the temple in Jerusalem will mean nothing. Hey. What is he saying? The law is going to pass away. That old age in temple worship time is going to pass away. 
That day's coming. By the way, when John writes in 95 A.D., where's the temple of Jerusalem? It's been gone. And his readers are looking back and say, boy, he was right there. (laughs) That's gone, you see. Now look at verse 22. He said, you worship, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. You worship all kinds of idols. You worship false gods. You worship God, the real God. But, you know, you're all mixed up. You worship what you don't know. We, meaning the Jews, know what we worship. Because salvation is of the Jews. Notice Jesus doesn't say, ah, it's okay if you embrace sort of an alternative worship and worship style. He doesn't do that. There's no neutrality when it comes to worship. Jesus says, worship is of the Jews. You have to worship the God of the Jews and him exclusively. Okay? But the location of the worship is not important. Who you worship is important. And then he says this in verse 23. But the hour is coming. And then he modifies it. And now is. In fact, the time has already arrived. It's here already. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So, he says, the time has already arrived. The days of worshiping in the temples. That day is actually gone. When I have arrived, God now dwells in me. Jesus is the temple of God, right? The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. The time has come right now where worship is not to be done in temples. That's not important anymore. It's right now that the true worshipers, who are true worshipers? True worshipers would be those who worship the real God. See, True worshipers will worship the Father. How? In spirit and in truth. Now, what does that mean, to worship the Father in spirit and in truth? Well, he's been talking about the spirit. That means probably the spirit of truth or the spirit who gives truth. Very similar to Jesus when he says to Nicodemus, you must be born of the spirit. If you're going to worship God, you have to worship him not with physical sacrifices, not with your flesh. You have to worship him through the Holy Spirit that gives you birth into the kingdom. See? Uh, so he's saying, out with the old, in with the new. Okay? Now look at verse 23. I just read 23, didn't I? So look at verse 24. <coughs> 24. He's implementing a new thing. He says, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He repeats what he says in verse 23. That means that you have to be born of the spirit in order to worship him. That's what true worship is. So Jesus is is sort of, an age is passing. Jesus is putting the old age aside when you worship God according to the law. And now worship comes only through the abiding spirit who replaces the law. That is absolutely essential. Notice you must worship God. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's the only way to worship God. Now we have exchange number three. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. The Samaritans believed in a Messiah who was going to come. They, based on Deuteronomy 18, the, 
where Moses said there's going to be a, the scripture says there's going to be a prophet who comes like unto Moses, who's going to tell people everything. And so they believed in some sort of Messiah coming. He said, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. That is John putting that in there uh, as an explanation to a Gentile audience. He's explaining what Messiah means to the Gentile audience. That's why the parentheses are in there. Who's called the anointed one. When he comes, when Messiah comes or Christ comes, he will tell us all things. So we, we're waiting for a guy who will tell us all things. And then that's when Jesus answers and he says to her, I who speak to you am he. He, uh, he confirms her statement, only he identifies himself as the Messiah. Literally, he says to her, I who speak to you, I am. He uses the same wording as Moses back in the Old Testament, I am that I am. So he says, I am the Messiah. Okay. Now, uh, when you look at this passage and you compare it to the Nicodemus passage, you begin to see some uh, contrasts. For example, <coughs> Nicodemus, that event, Jesus and Nicodemus takes place in Jerusalem. That's the southern kingdom. This takes place in Samaria. So there's a difference there in unclean territory. Clean territory, unclean territory. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night under the guise of darkness. This woman and Jesus meet at high noon <laughs> in the brightest of daylight. Okay. In John 3, Nicodemus is named. We have his name, Nicodemus. In John 4, we have no idea who this woman is. She's not even given a name. See? So it shows you something there. In John 3, Nicodemus takes the initiative. He comes to Jesus. Say, we know, we know, we know. Here the woman comes at the well and Jesus is sitting there. She says, hey, give me a drink. Jesus takes the initiative. Big difference there, isn't it? In John 3, Nicodemus is a man of respect. John 4, his to the woman has no respect. In John 3, Nicodemus, Nicodemus just fades by the wayside. He just walks away. But in John 4, what does this woman do? Maybe you read it. Look at verse 29. It says, she ran into the village. She actually dropped her water pot. She went off into the city in verse 28. And she ran into the village and she said, come see a man who told me all things. Notice she begins to witness immediately. Nicodemus just sort of fades in the darkness. This woman, at the height of day, runs into the city and says, Come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She goes from seeing Jesus in verse early part of this chapter. She goes from seeing Jesus from being a Jew. What are you, a Jew? have to do with me, a Samaritan, to seeing Jesus as a prophet, to finally seeing Jesus as a Messiah, seeing Jesus as a man, seeing Jesus as a special man, <laughs> seeing Jesus as the Messiah. Hey, that's the process we usually take in life as believers. We didn't come thinking Jesus was God immediately, recognizing him as the Messiah, at least those that weren't raised in religious homes. 
we first look at Jesus and we say, hey, he must be a great man. We then go and say, maybe he's a prophet. And then one day our eyes are opened and we say, he's the Messiah. And next week we'll see how this woman witnesses to the men of her village and then how they proclaim as a whole Jesus as the Messiah. Whereas the people that Nicodemus represents reject Jesus as a whole and say he's not the Messiah and we put him to death. That's where we'll pick up next week. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for <coughs> helping us to understand that Jesus uses this woman's circumstance of being married five times and living with a man to, to teach a history lesson of why the Samaritans no longer have God's favor and blessing upon them. Oh, Lord, help us to look at our past. Have we been faithful? Have we been idolatrous? Lord, if we have, bring us around to see the truth that your son is Messiah. We thank you, Lord, that you've touched our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your scripture that opens our eyes. Now, Lord, we just commit our lives to you.